Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. All right, so turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 8, and um, we're going to cover five verses tonight, only five, and I saved, I was going to take these last five verses of <clears throat> Joshua chapter 8, 30 to 35, and I was going to cover them last time, but I thought, no, there's too much in here that I just need to back off, take my time, and go through this, and, you know, as we put it on YouTube, uh, Bible study, but uh, we're going to talk about after the victory, because remember, they have just uh, re- reversed a, a, a loss, it was very embarrassing, that's the loss at AI, and they've won the victory there, and so we're going to talk about after the victory. I was reading this really short, how many watch the Super Bowl, anybody watch that? I watch the Super Bowl because I want to see the commercials and there's food there, that's my reason for that. And I, I used to be so into everything so much, and I don't know, something happened and my brain snapped, and I'm not into too many pro sports anymore, I like college sports a lot. But, um, but I remember reading in something leading up to the game, maybe a week before, Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback for the Chiefs, he said, he's, he's told his player, he says, uh, and it's a really wise move, he said, look, he goes, we're going to Las Vegas. He goes, we got some business to take care of there. Okay, you guys, if you promise me that you're going to take care of business and not go out partying every night, but walk right so we're ready to play that game, I promise you that I will pay to bring you, I'll fly you all back, hotels, I'll pay to bring you back if we win that game, and if you do not go out and mess around and stay pure business. Now, and of course, and that's only if they won the game, okay? And they did win the game, so I'm assuming that he was a man of his word and that he was gonna bring him back at a certain point in time. And so what he was really saying is after the victory, you have celebrations, Right? And so after any victory, any high points in life, we typically like to celebrate. That's human nature in our lives. And so now we come to this moment in time uh, with Joshua, and Joshua has just won uh, the big victory. They've reversed everything, the loss at Ai. Now they've turned it into a victory, and now they're going to have a celebration. Now it's not the kind of celebration that you would think is going to happen, It's a different type of celebration, and so I called it, and we're going to see what kind of celebration that is and how we should live that way, but I call it after the victory, but really I could have said it this way. I could have called it, what do you do after God has answered a massive prayer for you that you've been praying for quite some time? I mean, it's something that's like, wow, it finally happened. Or what do you do after God has finally given you that thing that you've been hoping and praying for and it's a big, big deal? What do you do after the stuff like that happens? Because Joshua and the gang are going to do something very specific about that. Now, I've been in church 40-some years. And so I've watched both sides of the responses after God answers big prayers and after God does something big in our life. I've seen the one side where people stick to their spiritual disciplines, they intensify, they stay with God. I've seen the other side where when God finally gives somebody that thing they've wanted, they cool off, they bow out of their spiritual disciplines to a certain percentage in their life, and they just kind of go back to where they were before. So we find that when we need something from God, we can be pretty intense about it. Any amens? 
And, but when, we even, when God answers the prayer, we should not back off that thing whatsoever. We should continue in our uh, approach to God and, and be as intense as ever before. So Joshua, now it's after the victory. And we're going to see what he does. Five verses, and there's a lot in these five verses. And I'm going to tell you, we're going to cover a lot of other, we're going to cross-reference a lot. So like I like to tell you, you're going to be spiritually sore in a couple days, okay? Because you're going to go all over the place, and it's a Bible study, Right? So we want to study the Bible, and it's a good way to keep learning where those 66 different uh, documents are in, in the Bible. Bible. By the way, the Bible's not a book. It's really like a library. It's a collection of 66 writings. And so look at it that way, and they all point to the one person, Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, Jesus Christ concealed. New Testament, Jesus Christ revealed. So after the victory, we're going to see what Joshua does. And uh, Joshua chapter 8, let me read verse 30 and 31 as we begin. And it says this. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel in Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded, say commanded, the sons of Israel, as it is written, say written, in the book of the law of Moses and an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Now, point one in your notes if you're taking notes, and that's this. First off, Joshua continues to be governed by God's word. Joshua continues to be governed by God's word. Now, how do we come to that conclusion right there or that reality? Because after the victory, Joshua leads them, and he leads them to Mount what? Mount Ebal is where he's taken the people right there. Now, the question is, why? Well, the reason is because something was written in the Old Testament law. There's a reason Joshua's doing this. He's not just saying, hey, there's a cool mountain with a cool view over here. That's not what he's doing. Something has been written that he knows about that he's going to be governed by it. And remember, we said at the very beginning of, the, of this uh, document of Joshua that Joshua is the first man in the history of all mankind to be led and governed by the written word of God. Because in Joshua 1.8, which we'll quote now and quote later, he says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall be careful to meditate on it day and night, and be careful to do everything that is written therein, and then you'll make your way prosperous, and then you'll find success. So he's the first guy that has the actual written word of God, and he's going to be governed by this written word of God. And so now you see this application in his life where he's governed by the word of God. So the question is, what was written that's propelling him to take the people to Mount Ebal? Well, turn in your Bibles to uh, Deuteronomy, just to back to your left, a few little pages, chapter 27 of Deuteronomy. And I'm going to read verses 2 through 8. When you're there, say, I'm there. Okay, you're not there yet. Okay, so 2 through 8 says this. Now watch. This is what was written. This is what Joshua is being governed by. This is what he is obeying. Now, verse 2, so it shall be on the day when you shall cross the Jordan to the land which your Lord your God gives you, that you shall set up for yourself large stones and coat them with lime, and write on them all the words of the law when you cross over, in order that you may enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, a land flowing with milk and honey, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. So it shall be when you cross the Jordan, you shall set up on Mount Ebal, there it is, those stones, these stones, as I am commanding you today, and you shall coat them with lime. Moreover, you shall build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not wield an iron tool on them. You shall build an altar uh, of the Lord your God, 
of uncut stones, and you shall offer on it burnt offerings to the Lord your God. And you shall sacrifice peace offerings. A peace offering is an offering of thanksgiving, you're thankful, and an offering of fellowship, that this is your God and you're in fellowship with him. And so peace offerings, and eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very distinctly. So is that a clear-cut command? You better believe it is a clear. So here's a guy that's governed by the word of God. It's written earlier, and this is what I'm going to follow. Now, question. Are some commands in the New Testament, or I should say the Bible, are they easier for, for us to follow, some of them? Are some of them a lot more difficult to follow? Yes, they are. Every one of us has, and we're all different, but we have some of these things in the Bible, piece of cake. I can follow it. That's easy for me to follow but then you'll always run into one, some here and there's like, oh, that's a tough one right there for me to follow. Now, do you know what probably, and I, and I have no scientific or proof of this, but what is one of the hardest, most difficult statements in the Bible do you think for the average Christian at some point in time to actually practice and do? 10%, there's one for you right there. Tithing, there's like, I, I never read that before, you know, out of sight, out of mind. That's a tough one for some people. What, tithe? Are you kidding me? Some people have told me before, they say, uh, I, I make too much to tithe. And I go, well, let's come up here and pray for you that God can lower your income down to where you can afford to tithe again, okay? <laughs> you know, if, right? If that's what it takes, right? Let's lower it all the way down so you can feel safe about tithing now, right? And so, and by the way, thank you for tithing because of you, we get to do everything we do and reach out to the community and all kinds of stuff. But that's one. What's another one that's like sometimes that's a hard thing to do at us because, well, I won't give more. Deny yourself, what else? Love your neighbor. Hold on to that thought, Lou. Forgiving. Let, let me take, uh, yours is good. Oh, Paul? Don't covet. Don't covet. Let's not go there. Oh, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> Okay, let's go with love your neighbor and forgiving, because those are two of the tough, and covet, tough one, all right? Um, but forgiving, there, is, there, there comes a point in all of our lives when forgiving a certain person for what they did to us or somebody we know, it's kind of tough, yeah. right? Yeah. It's kind of difficult to do that. And yet, and we have the other one, I think, Lisa, you said that one? Lo love your neighbor. And so, I remember what C.S. Lewis wrote down. I'm pretty sure it's C.S. Lewis. He said about forgiveness, he said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a great idea until you have someone or something to forgive. It's just a great idea until, oh, I have to forgive them? Forgive them? Well, that's, now it's difficult, right? And then to love your neighbor, that's a very easy one just to whitewash over because we say, oh, I, I love them. Really? Love isn't just a statement, is it? If you read New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 4 through 9, you find that love is an action term. It has nothing to do with feeling whatsoever in that context. It's thing, this is what you must do. And so when you read that, and if you ever have somebody say, oh, I love them, and read them that section of Scripture and see if that's what they're doing. Because they'll go, oh, I'm not really doing that. So some things are not easy to do. Some things are harder, some things are easier to do, but you know what? Here comes old, old Joshua right here, and he's going to have them march 30 miles from where they're at to Mount Ebal, and they're going to build this altar, and they're going to inscribe all the words of the law on that. That's kind of a lot to do, right? And when there's a lot to do in the command of God, we're kind of like, ah, I don't know if I'm going to do that, okay? That's 
kind of a lot to do in my life. It's out of my way, and I had other plans, but, but no, but Joshua's going to do that. Now, <clears throat> why do we tend to shy away from things that are harder? Why do we tend to pull away from that? Why do we pull that page out of the Bible? No, do you? I know you don't do that right there. Okay, we'll leave it alone. We'll move on right there. Okay, we'll move on. Let's still go back to Joshua because there was no answers on that one and I can't wait a long time. Now, the secret to Joshua's success, remember, is he's going to obey the, 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 the written word. Is he not? This book of the law shall not depart from your, but you shall meditate on it and be careful to do. So now you have, you think about it, you talk about it, and you got to do it. It's not just, oh, think, that was a good message. I'm glad I got to think about that. No, you got to go do that, okay? You got to do something about this. This is what it says. So that's the secret of this guy's success. It's the secret of any of our success. Now, verse 31 again. Let me read it again. I want to pull some, some uh, thoughts out of that. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no one no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed uh, peace offerings. Now, <clears throat> when, when, uh, when Moses, when he's making these statements, so we read them in Deuteronomy 27, correct? Now, we know, because we, we know we, we, we've read it, we know Moses is near the end of his life, correct? We know he's not going to get to go into the promised land because the guy hits the rock, remember the second time? When he's supposed to what? Speak to the rock. He's not supposed to hit it. And so now he's going to get to watch them go in the promised land up at Mount uh, Horeb up there, or I'm sorry, Mount Nebo, which is in modern-day Jordan now. But he's given his farewell speech. This is what he's doing. This is my farewell speech. This is my last words. These are what's important. Have you ever thought... Because I have. Have you ever thought about what your last words you want to be said and to whom you want to say them to? Have you thought those things? I never thought those up until the last five years of my life. But I started to think about it. Man, I could even tell you, but I won't tell you all of it because if you outlive me, I want you to be surprised at my funeral, okay? <laughs> I've even got the songs picked out and I don't want one big montage. I want like four or five different montages throughout my funeral. And then I want to have one last one where I'm talking to everybody. <laughs> I, want, I want to do all that. And so, but I'll tell you one of the songs because I might, my, thank you, Richard. But one of the, because I want my, my funeral broken up into BC before Christ with all my long hair pictures when I'm a young guy because I didn't get saved till 23 and then I want to broken up into the church and the family and this. And I'll tell you two of the songs, Okay. My BC song is going to be, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll by ACDC. That's right. Because that was what I was heavy into when I was a young man. This is Jim Del Campbell before he met Christ, everything. And then the one section where it shows my life I, you know, with the church and all I got to do all through the years, that's another one. It's a, I don't know the name of it, but it's a, it's a Green Day song, Time of My Life. I want that one played there at that time. So, and I know people are going, why did he have secular songs? I really don't care what you think at that time. I'll be with Jesus, okay? <laughs> so it don't really matter to me at all. But, um, so I, I want to do that. But I, here's also what I want to do. If I, if I have a moment or a, a time where I am actually there and, you know, it's not much time left in my life, I want all my, my farewell speech, 
I want my grandkids in that room. And if they don't want to come, I say, you drag them in this room. (laughs) Because I got something I'm going to tell those kids. And so I'm going to tell every one of them. I said, this is what your granddaddy, I'm not G-Pa, I'm not, you know, whatever. I'm granddaddy, okay, that's my name. And so um, I want to tell them all. I said, look, I want you to promise me in this room right now that you are going to follow God with your whole heart for the rest of your life. Promise me. I'm going to go one at a Promise me. You're going to promise me. And you're going to promise me that you're going to teach your children, my great-grandkids, that I may probably never see at all. You're going to tell them, and you're going to, you're going to teach them about Jesus Christ. You're going to continue that legacy. And you're going to tell them that your granddaddy loved them, though he never met them. And you're going to tell them that your granddaddy loved Jesus with all of his heart. That's what your granddaddy was all about. I got it all locked in my head, man. I know what I'm going to do. And by the way, I think most of you know by now that, you know, I'm working on this first book. But my second book that I I already know what I'm going to do, but it's a personal book. It's, It's not for anybody to have. It's only for my grandkids. And I I suggest everybody do this in your life. I'm going to write a book that's for my grandkids. It it starts my life, childhood, all the way up through the years, the BC years after Christ, all the way through my life. It's going to talk about all that, and each one of my grandkids is going to get a copy signed by granddaddy, okay? Because I want them to know who their granddaddy was. It's personal for me because I've told you many times, I never met my grandfather's. My dad's dad was murdered in Mexico when my dad was a year and a half older thereabouts. That's how they brought him to America back in 1916. My mom's dad, well, one day she's like 10 years old and they go down to the, the city there and say, the dad gives her a penny, you know, it's way back when, 1927, gives her a penny to go buy a candy. She goes, gets it, she comes back. Her dad is on the train and the, he's, the train's leaving and he's waving by and she, he left the family and she never saw him again. So I never, ever got to know my grandfathers. And so for me, my grandkids are going to know their granddaddy, okay? And they're going to know. So that's one of the things I'm going to do. And I'm going to make sure they promise me that they are going to walk with God. And I'm going to hold on. I'm not going to pass until they they promise, okay? I'll be like, no, I won't be doing that. (laughs) Cut. (laughs) Okay, point two. Build an altar to the Lord. So after the victory, you build an altar to the Lord. Now, they're going to bring all these rocks together, uncut, unpolished, and of course, covered in lime. That's what Moses said to do. And they're going to build this altar. So that means what is an altar in the Old Testament? It's just a a pile of rocks. That's all it is. You don't form it in anything. You don't carve anything. that's, That's just what it is. Now, there have been, and over the years I've read different commentaries and they give cool little applications from this. Can I give you some of them? Of what they draw from that? Because that's what I want to do, all right? So um, applications, I got, I got like, what, four of them or something like that? The first one is, application from that altar is, no human effort can save a person. They cannot design the altar. They cannot carve on the altar. They cannot make an image out of the altar. All they do is just put, throw a bunch of stone, rocks together. So there's no human effort in design or fashion or anything like that. And so over the years, commentators, they, they take that to take a picture because remember, Jesus Christ, Old Testament concealed, New Testament revealed. 
That's a picture of our relationship with God. That there's nothing that you can do on us, on our human effort to save ourselves. Nothing whatsoever. Now, watch this. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. I told you we're going to cover some ground tonight, so you've got to move fast with me. <clears throat> if you hurt your arm turning the pages fast enough, I can't help you on that one right there. Okay. You there? Say amen. amen. Okay, very common, well-known verses. Probably should commit these to memory. They're good to remember. And that's this. For, verse 8, chapter 2, Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through, through faith. Faith is on the front side of grace. That's very important theologically for me. Anyway. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. So now you find that we're not saved by what we do. There's zero human effort in salvation. That means if I'm not saved by doing something, I cannot be unsaved by doing something. Any amens? Amen. That's a very important statement right there. If I'm not saved by doing something, I cannot be unsaved by doing something. Now, now let me show you how the enemy, the devil, demons, how they get into our mind and they play this game with us. Turn over to Exodus chapter 5, way to the left. Exodus 5, when you're there, say I'm there. Now this is where Moses has now come and he's told Pharaoh and he says, Thus saith the Lord God, let my people go. Now notice he says, thus saith the Lord God, let my people go. Moses didn't say, hey, let my guys go. He didn't say that. He said, thus saith the Lord God, let my people go. So who do the people belong to? They belong to God. Who does Pharaoh think they belong to? He thinks they belong to him. He said, no, they don't belong to you, Pharaoh. These people belong to God. Now, watch this. When, when Pharaoh gets the news that, you know, he's got to let the people go and, you know, Moses has confronted him, it's the very first encounter. Now, watch one of Pharaoh's responses. Verse 18, 19. So go now and work, for, and, and work, for you shall be given no straw. How many of you have watched the old movie, The Ten Commandments? Okay, next time this scene comes up, listen. Because somebody in the background yells, no, straw! And I love that line, okay? <laughs> it just, just listen for it, because it's clear. No, straw! You know, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome, I'm telling you right now. Um, he says, no straw. Yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. The foremen of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told, you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. Now stop. So, Pharaoh and the guys are supplying the straw that adheres the mud bricks together, right? But when Moses comes and says, let my people go, this is the day of salvation and deliverance. The people are going to get saved in a sense. That's a picture of that. And what does Pharaoh do? Well, guess what? I'm not letting him go, and we're not giving you any straw, and you cannot reduce the amount of bricks that you make every day. What has Pharaoh just done when salvation comes into play in a person's life? He tacks on more. You follow that? Did you follow that? He tacks on more unto people. Now, I'm, so it's like not, not two days. Nine days ago, Sunday morning, um, you, if you ever watch it, unless you leave quickly, I stayed here for a while for people to come and ask me questions if they need to ask me a question. Um, and so a young gal comes up to me. She's probably in her 20s. And, um, and, and, she, and she's come up and asked me questions before. And, and she asks, she starts talking to me, and, and, she, and she says, I, I, can I ask you a question? Sure, you can ask me a question while I'm sitting here. And um, 
She says, yeah, and she's talking, I'm just trying to live for God, and she's really sincere. She goes, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I'm trying to stay away from movies and this, and stay. I'm thinking, whoa, 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 because you know I'm a movie guy, right? <laughs> and I said, look, I think you're making it a little bit too, uh, too hard on yourself. I said, yeah, there's some movies you probably shouldn't watch, but that doesn't mean all movies are bad. And, and I, started, I tried to show her, what, I said, what you're doing is you're becoming legalistic, which she didn't understand yet, but you're piling things upon yourself that are not laws or rules to keep. And this is what we do, do we not? We're very good at that, because we think by following all these extra rules that, you know, God really loves me more. Really? He loves you more, huh? Okay, good for you. Keep that up. See how that works out for you. So, and then I'm talking to her, and I say, look, you're just piling things on yourself. I said, and it gets heavier and heavier. She goes, yeah, it does. I go, when Christianity gets too heavy, just know one thing. You're doing it wrong. Because Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is? It should be a light. It's still a burden, but it still should be lighter. And I said this to her. I go, think. In Genesis 3, and I'm t- she's standing right there, and I'm sitting right here. In Genesis 3, I said, when the serpent is tempting Eve, and they're talking about that fruit, and Eve responds and says, we're not allowed to eat it. We can't even touch it lest we die. What's wrong with that statement? God never said you couldn't touch it. But I told her, I go, God, God, she said, we can't even touch it. I said, she could touch it. So what's the problem? And the girl's eyes are up. She goes, she's adding things. Bingo, bingo. Don't be adding things outside the word of God. Don't become legalistic or else it gets too heavy. Now, some of you, that's, you're, you're making dangerous statements because you're letting people, no, you shouldn't watch certain movies that have certain things in them, right? And if it does cause you to stumble, then don't watch, you shouldn't do it, period. It's just that simple, man. Just stay away from those things. And so, but yeah, so, uh, I don't even know where I'm at anymore. I've gone so far off that. Oh, so he'll, Satan, Satan, the enemy, will always try to make us think we have to work for it and work hard. No, salvation is by grace through faith. And that's it. And once you settle that one, it gets a lot easier, my friends. It gets a lot easier. Now, the second application is Jesus was an average-looking man. He's an average-looking man. Now, the stones, are they polished? Are they carved? No, they're just a bunch of pile of rocks. Do you think it looks real super cool? No, it's just a pile of rocks. So, you know, here's one of the applications you could take from it. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53 to your right. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Son of Solomon, Isaiah. Look at 700 years, this is written before Christ. Isaiah writes this in the famous... Um, Chapter on the suffering servant, the Messiah, chapter 53. Look at verse 3. 2 and 3, I'm sorry. It says, he's talking about Jesus to come, the Messiah. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. And by the way, a tender shoot, that's where Jesus grew up in Nazareth, Netzer, branch, branch town. David's ascendants went to Nazareth. That's how you get the branch, the shoot. That's why they call it Nazareth, branch town, etc., etc., etc. Interesting, huh? And like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Question, 
What does Isaiah seem to be writing prophetically about the appearance of Jesus Christ, the Messiah? You couldn't pick him on the crowd. He's just an average, average, maybe below average looking guy. You couldn't pick him out in a crowd. And maybe that's why, and maybe that's why the night when Judas comes and leads the, the gang to arrest Jesus in the night, I know it's nighttime, maybe that's why too, but they have torches and there's only Jesus and the 12, maybe that's why Judas got to kiss him because they couldn't pick him out in a crowd. He's just an average looking guy, which is so contrary to our society that worships exterior beauty. Any amens? That's all they do. And it also happens to us because we know when Samuel, after Saul blows it, and then he's called to go anoint the next king out of the family of Jesse, of which David is the youngest. But when the first son comes through, the Eliab, what does Samuel think in his mind? Look at this guy, man. He's good looking guy. This has got to be the guy. And then what does God tell Samuel? No. No, you're looking at the outward appearance, and God looks at the, God looks at the heart, at the heart. And so another application then for us is, he was an average-looking guy. I kind of like that. Now, the third application is a sacrifice had to be offered in your notes. A sacrifice had to be offered. Turn to Leviticus chapter 1. You know the book that you guys read every week at home? <laughs> Leviticus 1. How many have ever read through Leviticus? You just got done? I many, many times because I kind of have to. No, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> but now, so there's a sacrifice that was offered back in Joshua 8. We find out that it was a burnt offering. So just real quickly to show it here. In Leviticus 1, if his offering is a burnt offering, say burnt offering, from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Now, what's a burnt offering? It's an offering of, de of devotion and dedication. So they're offering a burnt offering at that altar, which is a picture of, I'm, I'm devoted to you, I'm dedicated to you, Yahweh. Now, <clears throat> here's the thing that I think is very important. So if the burnt offering is an offering of devotion unto God. So there's an animal sacrifice at Mount Ebal, there at the altar. Now we know, and we didn't read it, the whole thing, but we know Mount Ebal, there's, okay, let me back up, back up, back up. Back in Deuteronomy, and this is going to happen again in Joshua, they've got the people. But Deuteronomy says, half of you over here on Mount Ebal of, the, of all Israel, half of you on Mount Gerizim. One is the Mount of Cursing, and one is the Mountain of Blessing. By the way, side note, Mount Gerizim is where uh, the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, where the Samaritans, that's where they worship. And they built their false temple there because they didn't want the people, the Samaritans, who are half Jew, half Assyrian, to go down and travel to Jerusalem and worship there. So they built this, the, their own phony temple there. And that's there. But here's the Mount of Blessing, the Mount of Cursing. And God has the people stand there in, in, in Deuteronomy and they're saying, they're saying, blessed are you if you do this. Blessed are you if you, blessed are you if you do this. And the essay goes, but cursed are you if you do this. And cursed are you if you do this. It's the blessing and the curse. It's a big deal. And so now Joshua's coming here in the whole reenactment type thing because they're going to read the whole thing. But they have a blood sacrifice offering there at Mount Ebal, Ebal, Mount of Cursing. Do you see the picture? No, do you see the picture? 
When, a, when Adam sins, the curse comes upon us, right? Yes? Yes, no, yeah? Okay, now, quickly turn to a verse that I've had you go to multiple times. Galatians chapter 3. I told you I was going to make you work tonight. You're going to get a good workout tonight, man. You guys don't mind going to a bunch of verses, right? Because I enjoy it. As long as I'm happy. Now, remember, so the Mount of Cursing, they have a blood sacrifice right there at the Mount of Cursing. Now, read, watch this. Verse 10, Galatians 3. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a? Ah, because the curse came in through Adam when he sinned. Um, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Because remember what we say about that? When somebody says, well, I just believe that I, I, I just keep the Ten Commandments. First off, like I tell you, ask them to name them. And they can't. But if you're going to live by the works of the law, then you have to keep how many of them? All of them. If you break one of them, guess what? It's trouble now. You're under the curse. So nobody can redeem themselves. So, watch this. Verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. And that's something that's, that's, that, that Abraham enters into covenant with God by faith before the law ever came into business there. Verse 12. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, curse is everyone who hangs on a Now, okay, now we find that we've been redeemed from the curse. Jesus played the, paid the blood ransom sacrifice to redeem us from the curse. We see here Joshua is at Mount Ebal, the curses, but you have a blood sacrifice and so you see the picture there that's being painted of Jesus to come, the blood sacrifice that redeems us from the curse. He became a curse for us. Do you see the picture? Yes or no? Okay, good. Now, let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Way to your right. If you go to Revelation, we're not teaching out of that book tonight. Hebrews. You can go to Revelation, start backing up. If you're, if you're still new to the Bible. Now watch about the blood sacrifice. Why this is so important. Hurry, 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 because I think I'm running out of time. No, I think I'm doing good. I think I'm good. You guys are good. Okay. Now, look at verse 22. Hebrews 9. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no... There's no forgiveness, no forgiveness whatsoever. Without the shedding of blood. So now you see the whole picture that Jesus became a curse. He shed his blood so we could be forgiven and redeemed from the curse of the law. You see the big picture. Now, that's what a sacrifice does. But I want to show you something, not in your notes. Can I do that? It's, I think it's really important. Look at verse uh, 3 and 4 but in whose sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. In other words, the yearly sacrifice in the temple where the priest would sprinkle the blood, they did that every year. That's just a, it covered sin, but never cleansed away sin. And all it did was remind you that you are a what? You're a sinner, man. That's what it did, it reminds you every year. Verse four. 
For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's a big statement. But let me tell you why it's a big statement. Because in our day and age, for the last, since the early 1800s, they say that humans and animals, apes, are from the same family. We hear that, right? It's taught in schools, been taught in schools, that we're the same. Hmm. No. Because on day six in Genesis chapter one, it says, and God said, let us create the beasts of the field. And he creates all the animals, the land animals, which is the day, day six, when dinosaurs were made. 6,000 years ago, guys. So get that one straight. But then in the same day six, God says again, he goes, and then God said, after he makes all the land animals, he says, and then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So now you see on day six, distinction between animals and mankind. Correct? Very important right there. So now, if, it, look, animals, if we're part of the animals, a family of apes, then Jesus is just one of that family and he could never really redeem mankind because this animal, only a human could redeem humans. And Jesus had to come as a human. God-man came down because animal blood cannot redeem us. from. It doesn't wash away sin at all. It covered sin, but it never washed away sin. So there's a big distinction right there, and I hope that made sense to you because it really makes me feel better about my life. Okay, now, go back to Joshua chapter 8. Let me throw one last thing about that, about these rocks. We've only covered like two verses? What are you guys doing? No, I'm just Okay, now look back at Joshua 8, 29 to 31. Remember what, question, do you remember what they did to the king of Ai after they conquered the city and killed him? What they do to him? Verse 29. They hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua gave command and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the city gate and raised over it a great heap of stones that stands there to this day. Did they throw rocks on him? Yeah. Is he hung on a tree? Yeah. Which means he's What? He's cursed, don't forget that. He's cursed, and they throw rocks on him, okay? Just trying to show you something I think is pretty cool. Then in verse 30 and 31, Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. So they traveled to Ebal 30 miles. They built this altar, just a pile of rocks. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded in the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law, an altar of uncut stones on which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered burnt offerings, there's a sacrifice of blood, on it to the Lord and sacrifice peace offerings. Okay, here's what I like. The cursed man. They throw rocks on him. Right? But Israel, the uncursed people, they just make rock a rock altar. Nobody throws rocks on them. But the cursed man, they throw rocks on him. But the Israelite, they just build an altar of rocks. They just pile rocks up there. Listen, Christian, and I think it's a big one. You've been redeemed from the curse of the law. It's all been washed away. Past, present, future. So whoever in this room or watching one day down the road here, when you mess up, 
Quit throwing rocks at yourself. Quit patting on yourself. Quit living like a cursed individual. Quit mentally pummeling yourself for a mistake you've made. And I always like to say it this way. Jesus took the beating one time. Never to be beat again. That's why Moses got in trouble. He, he, hit, the, he hit the stone the second time. If Jesus already took the beating, why are we beating ourselves? No, 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 no. When you beat yourselves, you might as well be the king of Ai at the gate there, throw rocks all over the person. But when you walk in the light as a new creation, you understand, no, you built altars. And it's the sacrifice blood of Jesus Christ that washes away all sin. And I don't have to beat myself up over a mistake or when I messed up or did I don't have, I'm under the blood of Christ. And you don't listen to the old mind games of the enemy in your mind. Does that make sense? Yeah, did that free help anybody tonight? Yeah? Yes or no? Okay, good. Okay, here we go. Now, back to Joshua. Now we're really going to progress a few verses. Verse 32 and 33. He wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. First off, how long did that take? Right? I mean, we're, talk about, really, we got to do that now? <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's what Moses said to do. A copy of the law of Moses, which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. All Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. The stranger as well as the native, half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebel. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had given command at first to bless the people of Israel. Point three in your notes. Two groups become one. They're all gathered there. Half Mount Ebal's side, half on Mount Gerim's side. Now, if you read there closely, you saw that there's also including there strangers and natives. Strangers and natives are all gathered in there. So now you get this great picture now of all these groups being brought together, blood sacrifice, here it is. They're all being brought together into one group. Remember when I talked a week and a half ago on Sunday and I was talking about how we're all, the Jews and Gentiles all come together, right? That the church is the only antidote to an uncivilization. Remember that message there? Okay, good. Yeah, okay, good. Remember that one. So here it is. Here's that picture right there. They're all being brought together through blood sacrifice. Now, let me give you a little bit more on this that I, that I didn't give you that Sunday. Just a few verses. Turn to look at John chapter 10. New Testament John. When you're there, Sam, there. Now, we're going to go to verse 16. Now, watch what Jesus says. It's a little statement, but you have to catch the statement because it's very profound, very true, and very prophetic. Verse 16, watch what he says. Jesus says, he's talking about the sheep, the shepherd, etc. I have other sheep. That's interesting. Stop, sidebar. If you ever come in contact with the Jehovah's Witness, they're going to say, that's us. It's not. Okay, they're not the 144,000 because you have to be a male virgin Jewish man to be one of the 144,000. And that's not the Jehovah's Witness. Nowhere you're going to find that in all the Bible. That's it. But Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. He's talking to Jewish people. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Who is he talking about? The Gentiles. The Gentile church. 
that we all come together. In Christ, Jew and Gentile come together. That's what he's pointing towards here. Now, I made an allusion to this a week ago Sunday, but let me take it and do it again. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 to your right. Now, when he brings the two groups together, uh, you'll probably remember, hopefully remember I said this, but watch this in Ephesians 2, look at verse 14. When you there, say, I'm there. Now watch. It says, for he himself, this is Christ, is our peace, who made both groups into one. Stop. Who are the both groups again? Good, Jews and Gentiles. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, this statement here, we know there's division between the two groups at the time, but the dividing wall might be kind of an illusion to, on the temple proper, you had the court of the Gentiles who really wanted to worship, so, but they had to stay there. And then you have the court of the Jews, Jewish men, and, they, and if you're a Gentile, you could not cross over to the court of the Jews. And there was supposedly a sign that said, if Gentile, you cross this line, you die. And that's what people think, we can't prove it, that that was the dividing line. That you don't come in there because we are separate here. So Christ comes along and he brings all the groups together into one. That's what only Jesus can do is bring these different groups that don't like each other into one big family of God. He's the only answer. He's the only antidote to a crazy civilization. Amen? Turn to Joshua chapter 8. Now, verse 34. Then afterward, he read all the words of the law. You think that was a long time? Okay, first, guys, they write all the words of the law. And now they've written all the words. Now we're going to read it out loud. You're kind of there a long time, aren't you? The blessing and the curse. There it is. According to all that is written in the book of the, of the law. Number four, reach and teach. I mean, read and teach from the word of God in church. Read and teach from the word of God in church. I think it's a great picture of that. That they gather all together. It's a big, we would call a church service. They don't know what church is yet because we are the church, birthed on the day of Pentecost. But now they have the word of God and they're reading from it. They're speaking it. Here it is. And that's what churches need to do. Read from the word of God. Speak from the word of God. And you know, if you, know, if you follow anything at all, you know some denominations are veering away from the word of God. You know that. You know some preachers are veering away from the word of God. They're going, they're compromising these things, and we cannot ever compromise these things. That's why you've got to pray that God raises up young preachers and young theologians that stand strong and firm against what's coming at them, and they know what God says about things. Very important. You pray for them. Now, now verse 35, last verse. And I promise I'm only going to take like 20 minutes on this. No, I'm just joking. Verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, with the women and the little ones, say little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. Number five. Teach the next generation the word of God. Now let me give you a very important you said a verses to me, then I want to take this idea further and teach the younger generation. The next year, the word of God. 
I don't think you're going to come back. I think this is it for us. Yeah, you're not going to come back, so you don't have to keep the marker there. Go to Acts 20. This is one of these guiding light verses that every preacher, teacher of the Bible should follow. Acts 20, verse 27. It says, Paul speaking, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Did he teach it all? He taught it all. He didn't skip over it. He taught it all, man. Verse, even the hard stuff. Even the stuff the culture didn't like to swallow. He taught it all. Then he says in verse 20, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And there we call Jesus God, right? Because God shed his blood. But he says, look, one of your jobs is you teach the whole purpose of God is you got to guard this flock. And as a shepherd, you guard the flock with this word of God. You teach these things. And you try to, and you do your best to keep out uh, uh, false teaching. Verse 28, here's what Paul knows. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. There'll be people come in and they won't care about the sheep. And I've seen a few over the years. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things. Perverse means distorted. To draw away the disciples after them. And I've seen that a few times in my lifetime. That people try to draw people to themselves. They'll leave here and they draw people. I watch it. I watch. And I even watch people in this church applaud those people. I'm thinking, you, you, you don't even realize what you're doing. Now, we teach all of it. Now, back to the issue. We teach the kids. He says, the kids. You got to teach the kids. Is children's church important for the kids? You better believe it. You know what's more important? You need children's church because they need the fellowship of a church. But you need to teach the kids at home. You need to raise them up yourself. That's a bit. A, you've got the more. We, we get them for what? An hour? Well, if I'm preaching an hour and 45 minutes. Um, we get them for about an hour and 15 minutes. You get them all week. You got to raise your kids right. You got to teach them. Now, here's a sad verse in the Bible. Go back to Judges. So go to Joshua, then to Judges. Judges chapter 2. When you're there, stand there. Now watch this. This is after Joshua. Because Joshua dies in verse 8. It says Joshua dies. Verse 10. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Is that a sad verse or what? All the work that Joshua does, all the adherence to the law, all the teaching, and they die off, and the next generation has no clue about the word of God. And we know, we all know we live in a system now that they take our kids in school systems and they teach them everything opposite of Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11. They destroy the foundations. Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? 
And they seek to destroy the foundations. When you get in a debate with somebody and they say, well, this, and you say, well, the Bible says, and they say, well, I don't believe the Bible. Do not back off just because they don't believe the Bible. Don't back off because they have their own belief system based on what they feel and what they think, correct? All you say is, well, I do believe the Bible, so I'm going to share with you what it says. Because don't forget, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and able to pierce to the division of soul and spirit. Don't ever back off or apologize for the Bible. That's your strong foundation. If you eliminate your foundation, say, well, i got to go another way. No, then all you're doing is going on their foundation of feel and think, and you lose. You stick to your foundation. I don't care if they don't believe it. I think they're lying by saying that, but I don't care. I'm going to tell them what it says. Now, teach the kids. Um, about 30 years ago, you guys know Dr. Dobson, right? You've heard of Dr. Yeah, focus on the family. I remember he made this statement, and, and it just resonated, and I've never forgot. I've said it over the years multiple times on, in preaching. He said about children, he said, um, children are our messages that we send to a future that we will not see. Children are messages that we send to a future that we will not see. And that's true. Abraham Lincoln said, whatever's taught in the schoolhouse one generation will be in the White House next generation. So do we have a big responsibility in teaching our kids the right stuff? Uh, you better believe it. You better believe it. We have a tremendous responsibility to do that, to raise up the next generation of people. I'm out of time. So I had one more thing, but you want one more thing? Yeah. Okay, good. You, you know the story. Just, can I finish it the way I want to finish it? Let's go back to how many of you, let's be honest, just how many of you, when you mess up, you mentally pummel yourself with rocks? Raise them up so we can see. Sinners. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> okay, let's go back to the story. Not Joshua. But um, remember they bring the adulterous woman to Jesus? You guys remember that story, right? John chapter 8. And they're screaming and yelling. And they bring the adulterous woman, they throw her at the feet of Jesus. They said, Jesus, because they're just, they don't care about her. They don't care about, they're just trying to trap him. That's all they're trying to do. They don't care about people. They go, Jesus, this woman's been caught in adultery in the very act. And they think they, think they got him. They go, the law of Moses says we should stone such a woman. Can you see the smirk on their face? And then they say, but what do you say? And they think, we got him. And what does Jesus do? He kneels on the ground. Just drawing the ground. What's this guy doing? Jesus, we said the law of Moses, stone such a woman. And, and, and they're going to stone her. And Jesus stands up. And he says, He who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He didn't nullify the law. But he said, Who are you to throw a stone? Who are you to throw the stones? And one by one, and it's interesting, he says, from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones and they left. I, I, I just want to ask Jesus, what was the deal about the oldest to the youngest? Because my thought is, because some people think he was writing their sins in the ground. That's a thought. So if he was writing their sins in the ground, he must have written some of their names and their sins. And so the ones who are older had a lot more sins. <laughs> and maybe they had even sinned with this woman. It's a possibility. I, I, can't, I can't tell that's true. So they split. They all leave. And the woman's on the ground. She's crying. And then Jesus lifts her up. And he asks her these questions. He goes, woman, 
Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She looks around, no man, Lord. And he says these words, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. It's a great combination statement. But notice, he begins with, I don't condemn you. Now don't go sinning anymore. But he begins with, I don't condemn you. And we need to quit condemning ourselves. Because if we start condemning ourselves, guess what? We're going to go and sin some more. Because we're going to feel bad. And we're going to use sin as medication in our lives. But he doesn't condemn us. He doesn't condemn us, which fits with Romans chapter 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This means you're not eternally condemned at all. That's gone now. You're under the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. God, I just pray tonight, God, we could break through these old lies that we feel like we have to beat ourselves up and when we make a mistake. But God, no, we don't. It's all under the blood. We've been redeemed from the curse of the law. Jesus, you became a curse for us. Thank you, Lord. God, thank you for these five verses because they're loaded. Thank you, Lord. Bless everybody on their way home tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.